This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. And here we go. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your host, John Allen. And uh, before we get started, I want to say to all of my viewers and listeners, uh, please check the description of this episode. And in that description, you will find a few links where you can click in if you'd like to support the work that I do here on the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Um, Your support is not necessary, but it certainly is appreciated. Uh, Show me the love and I'll keep doing this work. I'll keep doing the work regardless, but uh, if you'd like to support me, I definitely appreciate it. So there. Now, today I'm speaking with a wonderful person, Sada Pastena, and uh, a little bit of background on Sada. She's the uh, founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Humans for Humans. Uh, She's a family therapist. She's from Portugal. She's living here in Norway. She has a master's degree in psychology. Uh, That's a heck of a resume. She's doing some fantastic work. Hi, Sada. Tell Tell us about yourself and the work you're doing. Thank you for being here. Hi, John. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, really great to be here, and I love learning from other people's experience, so I hope that I can give something also uh, meaningful to the listeners. Uh, So, yeah, as you said, I'm Sarah. I'm from Porto. Uh, I also have some family from Madeira Island, so my family is kind of dividing those two places. Um, And then I moved to Norway right after I finished my master's degree in psychology, so I moved here in January 2018. And okay. I was supposed to be here for a month, and it's been three years. So um, <laughs> it was not planned at all, but uh, I, I really like living here. What is it that brought you here? Was it, uh, was it a job opportunity, or was it through your education, or what? No, it was, it's, uh, my life has been a series of really good coincidences, but <laughs> I was finishing my studies, and I was going to do an internship in England um, in a university. And then some friends, like family friends needed a babysitter uh, for a month here in Norway and they were like Sarah just come stay at our place you help us with the baby a bit and you get to explore the city so I was like yeah why not it's a good and deal I, it's a good it's deal, a good deal. Yeah. and it was the perfect timing because my internship would start in March and I would come here from January to like middle uh, February yeah. so I came and after two weeks like I've been working with children and babies for many many years and I, I absolutely love doing it and they loved the way I was interacting and playing with their kid and uh, helping him grow. And they said, Sarah, do you want to stay for the whole year? Wow. And I, I was shocked. It was like one week or two weeks after I arrived that they asked me this. Uh, and I said, okay, I have a few calls to make uh, and I'll see. <laughs> and then I just called my family and I was like, oh, this is a really good opportunity. I've never thought about moving to Norway or I don't know much about the culture or anything here. So why not? And my family is super supportive. Like if I tell them that I'm going to climb a mountain barefoot, they will say, yes, just go. Uh, That's wonderful. That family, that unconditional family support is so important. Uh, People watching and listening know that from time to time, it's not that your family doesn't mean you well, they wish you well, but at the same time, they'll throw in those less than positive comments like, oh, be careful, or oh, are you sure? Or, you know, they put conditions on their support. But to have that unconditional family support, yeah, if you want to be in Norway, be in Norway and we support you. That's a, that must have been quite the relief to experience that. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. They have been like that since I was a kid, really. I've also been in Mozambique volunteering when I was 16, and that for my grandparents was very scary. But my parents were like, no, she's going. And 
it's okay, she will be okay. And they always supported me on absolutely any crazy idea I have. <laughs> and, and you have crazy ideas, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, from time to time. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's those crazy ideas. It's those ideas that kind of stretch beyond what people think is acceptable or think what is normal. Those are the ideas that lead to the best results that can help the greatest amount of people. Am I right? I think so, too. And I think that um, I, I, I like to be challenged. Um, yeah. And when there's too much stability, I create my own stress, <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, so, um, like, I, I like to be doing things. And even though, even after I started Humans for Humans, like, I've been working with other projects and I'm starting other projects because there's so much to do and so much that I'm interested in that I'm like, okay, well, maybe I should relax a bit. Well, well, that self-induced stress is a good thing. You know, I'm the kind of person I enjoy a challenge. And if the challenge isn't there, then sometimes you have to go and look for the challenge and kind of, as you say, create your own stress because, um, coming, you know, rising above that stress or handling that stress to get a positive result that leads to personal growth. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Uh, even though sometimes it's very overwhelming because yes. uh, then I get very it's anxious. Frightening. Or well, it's frightening. it's frightening, especially doing the kind of work that you're doing. You know, you, you're not working a nine to five where uh, you know that no matter what, you're going to have a paycheck every month. You know, you have mm -hmm. to go out there and you have to create your own opportunities. You have to um, ensure your own personal growth. You have to ensure and solidify this organization that you started, that's an enormous responsibility. Yeah, and, and at many times I've thought uh, maybe I shouldn't have started this, like maybe I'm not ready for what's happening. Um, but in the end of the day, what we are doing is having a really good impact on the people that actually need it. Um, and it's a lot of work, but I'm, I, since I'm interested in different things, like I like the fact that my, my job is not... Uh, the same thing every day. I know that I'll go to work and I'll have new things to do every day. And probably 70% of what I'm doing right now, I don't actually know how to do. So I have to really ah, go to mentors and I, I have love to it. take courses online, you know, and then people tell me just organize a hackathon, for example. And I'm like, sure, but what is that? <laughs> uh, so this kind of great idea, has, but has what happened. is it? <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, sure. This would be very good for you, Sarah. And I'm like, Great, but, but what does that mean? <laughs> but, but again, therein lies the excitement of doing what you're doing. You know, um, you have an idea, you know it can be meaningful. Uh, you don't really know how to make it work, but you know that if you can make it work, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to have a positive uh, ripple effect on a large portion of the underprivileged in our society. So you just jump in and do it. Now that says a lot about your character. That says a lot about your boldness. Now, help us understand your character and the level of your boldness a little bit better. Tell us what do you do uh, in, uh, in Humans for Humans? Uh, from what I understand, you guys have a focus on people who, you know, you provide, you, you provide mental health services for people who have landed in some rather unfortunate circumstances. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, so maybe I can start from the beginning of the beginning. Start um, at the beginning for the beginning. <laughs> uh, so I had an interview the other day and someone asked me, what's my first memory of something that made me want to have an impact on the world and make some changes? And it was when I was probably in primary school. We had an older student that had been in the Mozambique project that I was in like 11 years after I heard him. Uh, and he told me, 
uh, that he was there playing with the kids and he said do you know that it's very easy to build the phone like we can build the phone and the kids were like what and he said it's very simple just two cups of yogurt and a rope and the kids asked what's a yogurt and i remember this story as if it was yesterday because i was shocked that kids my age didn't know what a yogurt was yeah and i didn't understand why that was happening and then pretty young like i started volunteering and i worked with many like at risk populations and more vulnerable populations especially with children and youth and finally when i was finishing my masters i started working in a protection center for human trafficking victims in my hometown in portugal and i was shocked i had finished five years of studying psychology and not even once had i heard about human trafficking i had no idea what it was that it was still happening that slavery was still a thing um, and I was kind of angry that no one had told me that before it is amazing I, that human trafficking is still so far under the radar most people just don't really think about that as an issue exactly hmm. and I, I started working there and I realized that every day we were having new calls to to ask if we could provide shelter for another victim and another victim and another victim and we had to say no because we were we, we had the, the house completely full um, and, and I was like, I, I was just so shocked. I was scared. Uh, yeah. I started being scared of the world in, in general, you know, because then you start working with this and you realize how easy it is for, for you to, to be trafficked, for yeah. you to be exploited. Uh, and my colleagues as well were burn, burning out and many of them didn't have uh, the education that you probably need or would benefit from to work with such a vulnerable population and who work with such an emotionally challenging job. But one thing that I saw in my colleagues was like the biggest hearts in my life. Yes. Yeah. Um, my boss, she, she would put anything uh, in front of herself for those girls. Um, I was, it was a house just for uh, girls and women. Mm. And so that's what triggered this, uh, passion for this work. I created a very good connection with that organization, with those women and girls that I was supporting. Uh, and I, I loved it. I absolutely loved being part of making them feel like yeah. reintegrated in like a normal society, showing them the world as it actually is and not as they had experienced it before. Right, um, right. I, I remember I spent Christmas Eve with them and I had only been working there for like six months. Uh, but I, I wanted to spend Christmas with them and we had prepared all the presents and we had everything ready. And then when I got there, all of them were talking about Santa Claus. And I'm talking about girls that are my age or older. Uh, and I was calling my boss and I'm like, do they believe in Santa Claus? And she said, yeah, probably some of them do. <laughs> and I thought it was so magical and so strange for me. How can someone my age believe in Santa Claus? And so what I did was just like, I created Santa Claus, right? So uh, there wasn't a person dressing up as Santa Claus, but I asked, I told them to go upstairs, look out the window, hid all the presents in the Christmas tree. And that moment <laughs> I love was, it. I love it, was it. magical. It was magical. And it, it's in these moments you realize that you don't need to have a PhD or to know a lot about anything. There are very small things that you can do to help literally anyone around you. Yes. Um, yeah. And so that was really rewarding. It really yeah. doesn't take much to make a difference in a person's life. Sometimes there's just a simple act of listening, you know, yeah. being, a, being a sounding board for them. 
sometimes that is more than enough to change a person's life, at least for that moment, give them some sort of relief because they feel heard, maybe for the first time in their life. Um, what kind of women and, and girls um, did you see in Portugal who were victims of human trafficking? Were they native Portuguese or were they... Um, were they immigrants or refugees from other countries or was it a mix? What kind of people were you dealing with? I don't think I had any case of a refugee. Like they were trafficked um, through many networks. We had girls from Africa, we had girls from Eastern Europe and we had girls from Portugal as well. Okay. Um, in Portugal, uh, it's one of those countries where Portuguese people get trafficked inside their own country. So. Um, there are some countries like that. Normally, we distinguish like countries of origin, countries yeah. of transit, and countries of destination. Okay. And so, I'm talking about women from all ages. We had a newborn, we had teenagers, and then we had people that were in their 20s, and then okay. some that were like way over 60. Um, and literally, this this is an eye opener because it's literally anyone can be trafficked. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter your age. Yeah. It's, affecting everyone. Now, how, how, does, how do these women and girls fall victim to trafficking? Because for a lot of people, it's just inconceivable. Um, uh, a lot of people will try to put shame or guilt on these women and girls. You know, what did you do to become, uh, tra to be trafficked? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the circumstances are around these women and girls be being trafficked? Of course. Um, well, first, I, I would like to mention that men and boys are actually trafficked as well. Thank, thank you. Good point. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, for different reasons. And actually, when it comes to children in trafficking, it's 50-50. Yep. There are yes. as many girls as boys. Thank you for um, clearing that up. Thank you for saying that. Yes. And it's um, there are many reasons why someone would fall into trafficking. Um, but of course, it's common to see that people who come from a very vulnerable situation already someone that's desperate to provide for their family, someone that's desperate to uh, find shelter for their kids, for example, it's much uh, more likely that they will just go um, and go and follow an opportunity to work abroad or to get married to that person abroad um, without doing too much background check on what they are doing. Yes, because um, I think uh, I've, I've read stories of women, you know, maybe a... Um maybe a woman from the Ukraine um, um, through whatever circumstances uh, has the opportunity, and I put opportunity in, in air quotes, to marry someone from, I don't know, another country. And they go there thinking they're going to get married. Maybe they do get married, but all of that was a, um, a cover story where they end up in a foreign country, their travel documents are taken, and now they're told, okay, you have to do this. You have, we're going to sell you for sex services uh, or else. And then exactly. they're trapped. Uh, exactly. Is that there one are, way? That's one way it can happen. That's one way. And one thing that sometimes they do is, for example, uh, you can get this job abroad, but you have to pay like $2,000 yes. to, to get your contract and everything done. But don't worry, that will be taken out of your salary. And then those $2,000 become like $20,000. And then they keep growing the debt that you have that you don't have yeah. uh, just to keep you. And that uh, what you mentioned is very common, taking just all the traveling and identification documents, because then they are trapped. Like how 
you're not going to, in a foreign country, you're not going to run to the police, ask for help when you don't have any documents. They will see you as an illegal immigrant uh, and you will get into trouble. Uh, and of course, there are systems in place to actually help these people. But from their perspective, like, would you run away and ask for help when you're right. like, when you're at least in a different country, like in some cultures, they put their children inside planes just because they believe that because they are going to a better country, they will have a better life. And then these kids are exploited. But one thing, one thing that I would like to mention is that human trafficking is not always like, um, it doesn't always involve physical abuse or kidnapping or um, it can be your family. Oh, your family tell us about can, that. Tell us about that. So there are many cases and people that were just born into trafficking. So their families were selling them since they were toddlers, children for sex, for domestic servitude, for whatever reason, uh, to make money out of them. Um, many of these children die during trafficking. Um, many of the girls and uh, boys that are uh, exploited for uh, sexual purposes, um, they might have like up to 50 clients a day. And it's a child with over 50 clients a day. Now, uh, let's not be naive and not understand that that can happen, but just to, to, to just try and visualize that, to, just to think about that for a second, it just tears the heart out of my chest. But that's happening. Yeah. That's not uh, that's not unheard of. Yeah. And, and the worst part is like there's a there are many survivors out there who are advocates for their experiences, who are sharing their stories, who are sharing exactly how it happened to them. Um, and there's the, this girl that I follow, and I think she's fantastic. She's her name is Coco Burnham. She's on Instagram, super super active, and she has a podcast as well, telling her story. And I was shocked. She is one of the those people that were born into trafficking. Um, What's the name of her she, podcast? Uh, she doesn't have a podcast. She participated in some podcasts oh, okay. telling okay. her story. Okay. Um, and she um, she managed to escape, and uh, then she had a therapist. Like later on, when she found help, and that therapist re-trafficked her. Wow. That therapist showed like he's a therapist. He's listening to her story. He knows all her vulnerabilities, and he picks up that to re-traffic her, to re-exploit that person. And this is not that uncommon. In Humans for Humans, yeah. for example, we had that as well. A request for help from a survivor that said, my previous therapist said that everything that happened to me was my fault. So See, and that really shows how prevalent this whole issue with trafficking is when the people who are supposed to be there in a therapeutic um as a therapeutic resource for these people, they are actually involved in trafficking themselves. It's, it's wow. horrible. Like, I can't even begin to explain it. Like, literally anyone can be a trafficker. And so even when working with Humans for Humans, we want to do good and everything. But when someone comes, like, super excited about our work and wants to be involved, I'm like, okay, why do you want to be involved? And, you know... You have to screen them, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah Don't exactly. take every smiling face as an ally. They've got to prove themselves, maybe. Because we are always dealing with very sensitive information and we need to really take care, like quality has to be above everything else and you really have to be safe and make sure that all the information is not going anywhere, that not even inside the organization, not everyone has access to our clients that are getting therapy, right? Because there's no point in that. Um, so it's, it's a very sensitive work and even for the professionals that work in the field, they are also scared. Uh, sure, scared sure. of being tracked, scared of sure. being uh, 
uh, found that their information is leaked, like that someone understands. When I was working, for example, in this protection center, we could never say where we were working or what we were working with. Because um, while I was there, because I would do activities with the girls, for example, outdoors. And if a friend of mine knew that I was working with human trafficking survivors, and then he would see me on the street with yes. this bunch of girls, he would immediately know that those right. girls... Right. So confidentiality uh, and privacy is a big issue. And I would imagine that's a huge challenge. Um, uh, not the least because these traffickers themselves are quite the criminal element with a lot of reach, a lot of power. And I would imagine they can get pretty ruthless if they know that you are actually working against their money-making uh, trafficking machine. They might get a little irritated with you. And yeah. when they find out who you are, maybe where you live, that's an issue. And uh, that's, uh, that's the biggest issue. Uh, as soon as we have a suspicion that someone knows that our house is a protection center, we have to move location. Yes, yes. Um, that's mandatory. So the houses are never permanent because something might happen. Uh, and also we have to consider that these people, they don't always know that they were trafficked. They don't always know that they were uh, a victim of something that's really, really bad and inhuman. Sure. Uh, they think don't about, really understand it. Well, yeah, think about the child who uh, gets uh, dragged into trafficking at a very young age and this child becomes an adult, maybe a 20-something, 30-something-year-old adult, and that's the only life they've known. How do they yeah. identify that as something that is wrong? Of course, it has never been pleasurable for them, but how do they know um, when their whole life has been controlled? You know, their education, all of their mental input has been controlled by this trafficking situation and the trafficking organizers. Yeah, and it's... Um when you were saying that it wasn't pleasurable for them, sometimes it might be. Sometimes it might be their choice that they want to be there. Yes. Um, it might be that they fall in love with their traffickers as well and they have this uh, relation, toxic relationship with someone that's Stockholm abusing them. Stockholm Syndrome. But let's talk, like, it's the same with children that are abused at home, right? Sure. Uh, if you ask if they love their mother and their father, they will say, of course they love their mother and their father. Of course they want to be Yes. There. I can remember several cases that I'm, I'm a former police officer from the from the USA, and I can remember several cases where there was child abuse, both physical, mental, or sexual abuse, and it's it it's it just crushes your heart when that child doesn't understand what they have been exposed to, and they still love that parent, and they don't want to talk because they don't want to say something that's going to hurt that parent that has been hurting them for their entire young life. It's just, right. it's heart-wrenching, but that's the reality of the situation. It really is, and sometimes like, for example, when you get a message and you're, you hear that the survivor is saying, the therapist said everything was my fault, like almost the first reaction is thinking like, did that happen? Did the yeah. therapist actually say that? Yeah. Um, but that's not what how we should react. We should react like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened to you. But we always doubt the the victim. We always isn't that question. the truth? Isn't that the truth? I I you know the people very often the people who are in that majority that safe majority uh, the majority that decides the rules of society they have um, they can at times have a certain hardness to their heart to their soul to where it's quite difficult for them to believe the story of the minority. You know, that minority that's met with racism, that minority that's met with victim, victimhood. Um, 
oh, come on, it's not that bad. Oh, come on, maybe you're just misunderstanding what happened to you. You know, how, how do we break through that? I'm sure you meet some resistance in the work that you do. You meet some resistance probably from, from government agencies, probably um, from, yeah, some of these people who sit in that safe majority. How do you work through that? Uh, so one of the things that I truly believe, uh, first of all, the reason why Humans for Humans was created in the first place was because I started studying and realized that most survivors never get access to mental health support. Mm. Um, and there's very little evaluation of the services being provided. And so one thing that I truly believe is that the, the experts in this field are the survivors. Every yes. story is different and every every story is so different. Uh, we are collaborating also with Malaika Oringo. She has an organization in the Netherlands. She's a survivor herself. And one thing that she said was, first, uh, people cannot imagine the length that traffickers will go for one victim. Uh. People think that, okay, they wouldn't, okay, they have so many victims. Like, why would they put themselves into trouble for one? But they will do everything they can to keep all of them. Um, and another thing is, uh, so by collaborating with survivors, by having these experts, telling you what's needed, what happened to me after trafficking, because I'm not so interested or I'm not going to ask them to tell me their trafficking story. Everyone has asked them that before. That's what the media wants to hear. Um, so normally what we ask is what happened after trafficking? When you were free, what, what happened then? And then it's like 10 years undocumented, um, the survival started. Uh, I hear things that are not positive. I was put in the program that is like one size fits all, you know, oh. and victims come, as I was saying before, like they have all ages, genders, uh, back, uh, cultural backgrounds. How can we have a program that fits all? Like it's, it's impossible. Yes. Yeah. But I also understand that for government agencies and for um, NGOs and for all these entities that are involved, including the police and migration office and all that, they need to have protocols. They need to have a system in place. Um, then it's just difficult to make it survivor-centered, right? Yeah, because these pro these protocols are just something that was thought up in an office, you know, uh, a few men and a few women, uh, you know, in suits and ties and formal dress that have, again, they're coming from a position in that safe majority, and then they're making policy. Uh, yeah. That's a little cold. There's very little heart. There's very little understanding. There's very little practical experience. And then they call themselves the experts. But as you say, it is the victims who are the experts. They've lived it. Yeah. And, and if you want to create an organization, and if you want to work in this field, without talking to survivors, you're not going to make any difference. And there's more and more work being done in terms of including survivors also in policy making and decision making and uh, designing services for them. Uh, but I've also seen many survivors just doing them that on their own, creating their own organizations and just building up a community because they will be like, if I'm a survivor, I'll trust a survivor much more likely sure. than I would trust anyone else. Sure. So I think we, I don't understand how this has been going on like this for so many years. Like we need to understand that we need those people. Like yeah. their experience is very valuable. Their experience alone is a lot more knowledge than what we have because we haven't been through it. So you have, you know, you're not doing all of this on your own. Do you have a team of psychologists and therapists who work around you? Do you have, um, I don't know, does your organization get into any type of investigative work? Can talk a little bit about the, 
uh, about the structure, about the guts of humans for humans? How do you guys do your work in a practical sense? Um, so um, we are an organization that's entirely run by volunteers. Uh, we had some financial support uh, last year. We got some uh, a grant and some sponsors, uh, but it's not enough for salaries or anything like that. But I was lucky enough to just have people being interested. Most of the volunteers that we have uh, have backgrounds in human rights, psychology. Yeah. We also have marketing and business uh, and different backgrounds. And that's the core team, the people that work on developing the organization. We don't do just therapy. Um, but then we have the psychologists and we only have um, authorized therapists that have ex vast experience working with trauma. Um, and what we try to do is to create training opportunities for them as well, to learn oh. more about human trafficking, to learn more about the survivor's experience. And because working with trauma with a single time trauma is not the same as working with complex trauma. And now that's a new term that's also being developed, complex PTSD. And there's a lot of research to be done in this field. So what we do for now in practical terms is like someone asks for help. We connect them with a therapist that speaks the same language. Uh, that's one of the first barriers or the main barriers for not finding adequate mental health support is because a victim from Portugal comes to Norway and they don't speak English very yes. well, they don't speak Norwegian very well, and going to therapy, you really need to be able to fully express yourself and fully understand what the therapist is saying. So we connect them ideally with someone with the same cultural background as well, because that will also help a lot in their... Um, I, I would imagine it's a big challenge here in Norway. There just are not that many therapists or psychologists uh, of a non-Norwegian background. There aren't that many, unfortunately. No, and it uh, doesn't seem like they are looking for it either, um, which is a bit frustrating. But, uh, well, I, th I think that the most important thing is really... Uh, taking into consideration what they say. Yes. Um, but in terms of our team, basically then we connect them with those therapists. Uh, they have counseling online. We normally don't say therapy. We normally say mental health support because we are not okay. here to diagnose them or to tell them that they have a problem. Yeah. It's really like if they want to talk via WhatsApp to just have someone with whom they can just check in every now yeah. and then that's totally fine that's so kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier that sometimes the best help you can give a person who is a victim of some sort of trauma is just to listen it's really just to listen yeah interesting and that might be difficult as well because what the story that you will hear um it's worse than any nightmare you ever had so uh, it requires a lot of preparation and a lot of tra training to be able to work with this story as a mental health professional as a as a founder and executive director for your ngo um how are you affected by the work that you do and the stories that you hear uh, how are you affected and how do you deal with that effect um well i i feel like right now um sometimes there are those days that you hear a very bad story and you're really like my god the world is horrible humanity is horrible um but then as uh, our co-founder christina she's saying like we work on the hope side of things yes and we try to focus on that we are working with people that are already free uh, we are working with people that uh, have a new opportunity in life and we are here just to help them to help them feel good about themselves as well and really fully understand their rights as a human being and to understand uh that they can work to their full potential, understand what they actually love to do. 
Um, so that's a very positive thing. But at the same time, we had an event uh, and a survivor from the US joined us. She heard about us like from Twitter and then she sent us a very nice recording, like a motivation uh, for the work that we were doing. And we invited her for the event. And she ah. said something that for me was really like very touching. Yeah. That when she was trafficked, um, she got out of trafficking because of YouTube, because she found a story of a survivor that had gone through a similar experience. And she was like, okay, then maybe what's happening to me, it's not okay. Inspiration, yeah. And then she told me that um, when she sees people like us working on this topic, uh, she, she felt like she was very helped after she was free, after she was out of trafficking, that there were lots of good people that helped her. But when she sees groups like us working, she realizes that someone was caring about her before she was free. Someone was already caring before she, while she was still being trafficked. That's a beautiful that, acknowledgement. Yeah. It's so powerful. Absolutely. I, I don't, I think people, uh, I, I don't know what's wrong with our society. We love discriminating. We love putting people aside. Like we hate differences and it's like, I, I just simply don't understand. I don't understand how your skin color can bother you. I don't understand how your uh, background can bother you. Uh, I don't understand how someone can feel like they are more than anyone else. And sometimes being a friend can prevent trafficking. Just being friends, yeah. just listening to your friends. Just uh, I had a conference, and right after the conference, well, I was saying that in Norway, for example, it's common for men to lure these women to come here and marry them, and then they don't get married. Mm. Um, and right after that conference, a friend of mine from Portugal called me and she said, well, I have a friend that's going to move to Norway with a guy that she doesn't know. She never met him in person. And I was like, oh, no, boy. no, no, oh. don't go. Don't buy that plane ticket. Tell me his name, tell me the name of a family and everything. And I'll check if that's real. Um, and this is happening like to people my age, to people younger than me, to people older than me. Yeah, and yeah. it's very scary. It's very scary. So d did you find out anything about the guy? No, but she didn't come either. So that's very good. There you go. <laughs> you may you you may have saved a life or at uh, at least drastically changed her future by stepping in like that. Now that right there is a perfect example of the good works that your organization that you and your organization does. Something as simple as that. Pointing it's, out to this woman that you might want to think a little bit before you come here. That right there could have, and then think what what if she got uh, pregnant after coming here? Then had a child who's born into that life, into that world. So it's a it's, it's a it's a it's a ripple effect of 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 positive change. If that yeah, was the only success that you've ever had, then mission accomplished because that right there could have potentially uh, uh, stopped a lot of damage. Exactly. That's one thing that we really want people to understand with Humans for Humans. Like you go to our Instagram page and it's very like light and colorful and it is. bright. <laughs> uh, and that's because if we make human trafficking sound just like this very scary thing that's happening in poor countries, like people won't want to have anything to do with it. Well, like yeah, yeah. Well, and that's been an issue in the United States, my home country. There's a lot of people there who are resisting the reality of trafficking. They cannot get their heads around the fact that it's happening in a country like the United States. You know, in many people's minds in America, the greatest country in the world. You know, this is a third world problem. This isn't happening here. But the okay. reality is, in fact, that it is. The United States is, in fact, one of the 
almost, yeah, I guess I can say the best places to be if you are a human trafficker. Yeah, the other it's, one is Norway. There you go. And, mm -hmm. and, and going back to that safe, uh, judgmental, uh, blind majority, those are the people who have to be convinced of that reality in order for significant change to happen. Definitely. And it's so simple. There's like literally any simple thing if you're a doctor and if you just notice that someone's coming to the hospital with someone next to them that's answering all the questions <laughs> and the patient is like really not talking much and being controlled by someone else. If you, if you learn how to just pay attention to this tiny, tiny uh, signs, you might save a life. Yeah. It's yeah. that simple. I'm going to be reflecting for quite some time over your uh, story about just checking out this Norwegian guy who this this woman was supposed to come here and marry because that right again that is a perfect example of how just listening and then caring and then doing the smallest work the smallest little bit of investigating and how that can change someone's future for the positive. And unfortunately, I've met people who actually came to yeah. Norway for that purpose and yeah. never got married and got exploited uh, for domestic servitude or for sexual exploitation. And again, to clarify for people, these are native Norwegian men who are doing this to these women. That as well. But we have both, um, both Norwegian and non-Norwegian. But it's happening here. I guess my main point is, is that it's happening here in Norway and Norwegian citizens are involved in it. Uh, and yes. I, I, I want to stress that because there's, like I say, there's many people here in Norway and back home in the States who want to resist the reality of that. They just don't understand the, serious, the seriousness of it in such a great country as Norway. They don't think yeah. it's happening. And uh, uh, actually, uh, what, what I was saying before, like one of the best places to be if you're a trafficker, uh, is because uh, a few years ago there was a Norwegian, uh, on Norwegian news that Norway is considered risk-free for human trafficking. And when I read that title, I was like, oh, good. Like, Norway Meaning, doesn't have human trafficking. Right. <laughs> but what it actually meant is that traffickers, uh, there's a lot of money in circulation in Norway. Lots of people with a lot of money that want to buy sex. And so traffickers can come here, sell their victims, go away, and they're never caught, very seldom, seldomly caught. Um, there are lots of cases of labor exploitation in Norway as well from workers, construction workers, for example, that come from Eastern Europe. Um, and then they come here, they don't give them contracts, they don't pay them, or they live in very right. bad conditions. Because that's so, an aspect of trafficking that a lot of people don't consider. Most people, when they think of trafficking, they just think of the poor woman or the young girl who is sexually uh, sold for sex or is sexually abused. But there's more wings to this business of trafficking than that. Unfortunately, there's a lot. And also, like, street beggars, for example. Yes. That can also be a case of trafficking. Uh, they can also be forced to be there. Uh, there was a case uh, of a lady that had, um, like, I, I don't remember what was it, if she has schizophrenia or she had other cognitive uh, also uh, problems, and the trafficker was forcing her to sit down outside a supermarket begging for money. She had to sit for an entire day. He wouldn't allow her to go to the toilet. He wouldn't allow her to eat uh, and anything like that because she was just like, you know... Uh, an object for him she was so how, how do we how do we as citizens what, what can we as citizens do about that because that's something that i've been uh you know here in drummond it's been kind of an ebb and flow of the amount of of street beggars sometimes there's a lot sometimes there's fewer 
But every time I see them, it's it. I go through this little struggle. You know, you wanna you wanna do something to help them, but then if you help them, maybe you're helping a trafficker. How exactly. do what what do we do What do we do about that? It's also dangerous for them sometimes because the trafficker might be watching them. Yeah. Um, so watching their behavior, who they talk to, how for how long they're talking, and so if you spend a lot of time with them, and it's like, oh, do you need help? Are you in a safe situation? Then the trafficker might come and like take them to another place right, or a completely right. change. And there's the dilemma um, for a good for a good citizen who wants to help out. There's a dilemma there. So, like, I know some people who work in this feel like they can give a card, you know, and we can have a business card that looks very simple uh, or that doesn't really. Uh, show that we are going to help them get out of a trafficking situation. Just like something, if you're looking for a job, you know, like yeah. just take this card yeah. uh, and then they can call for help whenever they are in a safe environment. Uh, but I also think that it's better to report the case. If you have clear suspicions that that person might be exploited or might be in a very bad situation, it's better to report and then find out that actually it wasn't than to yes. not report. And that person just keeps on suffering. Good point. Good point. So if you just have any suspicion you can also like contact organizations like us like Rusa here in Norway there are many organizations fighting human trafficking and um, and all around the world there are organizations fighting human trafficking so yeah. asking questions asking like how can I talk to a survivor for example how do I talk to someone with trauma and um, how do I ask someone if they need help without sounding too pushy or yeah. you know yeah. there are so many things that anyone can learn and also paying attention to your friends because Nowadays, we apply for jobs online all the time. Um, people move abroad all the time for jobs. And uh, when I was 16, I applied to work in the Disney Cruises in okay. Canada. Yeah. I wanted to work there for the summer. And after a month or so, I, I got accepted. And they told me, okay, don't worry. The visa company will start talking to you as well. And I was like, this is so fast. I, yeah. They didn't even meet me. And I got the job, no interview, no anything. And so I decided to send an email to other Disney cruise companies around Europe. Uh, and I told them, I've just been employed by this Disney uh, cruise. And they gave me the contract and they said, we don't have offices there. That doesn't oh, wow. exist. Wow. And the visa company was already talking to me. And so I asked them like, okay, what should I do? And they said, don't worry, we will take all the legal procedures from now. Um, but what if I haven't checked? What if I had what if you gone? hadn't checked? What if you just would have gotten on a plane and went to where this job was supposed to be and then... On wow. the other side of the Atlantic, completely alone. <sighs> wow. How old were you at that time? 16. Oh, and good so Lord. Good Lord. Then I, I had no idea of human trafficking. I never even thought this could be human trafficking. Only years and, later. And that is an example of how easy it is to fall into victimhood through trafficking. That's how easy it is. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's very important to mention also... The things that we can do that actually, uh, how do you say, um, encourage trafficking and make yeah. it even worse. Like, for example, uh, volunteering uh, when we want to go and volunteer abroad and go to the Philippines or um, Thailand to work in an orphanage for a few months. Many of those orphanages are not actual orphanages. Those kids have parents. They have been taken from their families to create an orphanage to fulfill the white dream of volunteering abroad. Yes. And, and this keeps happening. And in Europe, we keep, keep having these programs, you know, go abroad for a month. What will you change in a month abroad? You right, know, like, right. It has to be a very well thought 
program to help. Uh, it can't be like if you're going for 15 days to an orphanage to help, you're doing it for yourself, not for those people that you are actually. That is a very good point, because there is this thing, again, going back to that safe majority. Um, I, you know, I don't know if, what kind of psychological process they're going through, but maybe they're feeling guilty because they know that they're in this this majority that really isn't listening to what the minority suffers. So they need something. They need a they need a band-aid, a plaster on this 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 sore, this guilt that's building up in them. So then they do something superficial like the ten day trip to yeah, to the Philippines, to the orphanage mm -hmm. there. And there are other things like for example the clothes that we buy or um, we should try to go for brands that really don't have any animal cruelty, any child ex labor or human trafficking in their supply chains. And of course, it's very difficult to know this for every brand. But if we start just asking or if we start buying more locally and sure. small businesses where you actually know how I was just going to say, from start to end. I was just going to say more of a local focus would be quite effective. Um, sure, there are children overseas who need help, but what about the children? What about the issue of trafficking? What about the victimhood that's more local? Because that you can be more hands-on. You can have a, a more full view of the inner workings of that organization if it's local. And that alone can do something to fight against potential trafficking and the, the potential furthering of victimhood. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think like right now, we're going through so many problems worldwide. Like this past three years have been insane in terms of information uh, that you get on social media or on the internet. Everyone is has an opinion about absolutely everything. And there are so many problems uh, around the world that it's also easy to feel overwhelmed and just like, okay, I need to take a step back and I don't want to hear about it. Uh, but we don't need to focus on everything at the same time. We can, yes. today we can focus, it's very important to focus on what we are also passionate about and what our skills are. Because I, what I can do to help the environment is being responsible by myself, right? Recycling by myself, yeah. cleaning yeah. the place where I go by myself. When it comes to human trafficking, because I have a background in mental health, I can do a bit more than what I can do um, in terms of other problems where I don't have the skills to work right. so much on it. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't care. It means that it is impossible for us to be involved in everything at the same time. But if we learn a little bit what we can do by ourselves to help a bit of everything, it's not that difficult. It's not that much. It's it's not. And everybody has something to contribute. Everyone has. See, there is a lot of ugly in the world, but I think there's more beauty in the world than there is ugly. The problem is, is that the beauty in the world is not focused. It's not concentrated. It's spread out. It's a little bit of chaos. And there's a lack of leadership for the beautiful in the world. If we could fix that, then it would be a short, a much shorter matter of time before we could fix the ugly in the world. That's that's a totally agree. How about that? I, I said something smart. No, but that that is something that I think of, and that's why I get inspired and motivated when I see people like you um, doing the work for the beauty in the world and helping to organize and gather some of that beauty. In, so that it is a more consolidated and a stronger force to fix the ugly in the world. Yeah. That's my f mental process of how I, uh, when I get an image in my mind of the kind of work that you do, that's what comes to mind. 
Um, well, thank you. Uh, I'm glad to, thank to you. hear that. And I think so too. I think it's very uh, easy for us to be consumed by the news and always hear what is wrong with the world yes. and yeah. what are the bad things going on. And at some point, like it's it's like uh, a psychologist that uh, has been working for many years. Like each case won't affect him or her as much as in the beginning of their career, right? Right. Right. And we feel the same as human beings. With um, information, it's like maybe in the beginning when we are very engaged, we hear this for the first time. We're like, oh my god, this is horrible. But then we hear it from many other parts of the world all the time, every day, and you're like, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. And that's when the the motivation and when the 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 power for change is lost is when you think, okay, I can't. I, exactly. I so I, I challenge people to, to you know, when they feel overwhelmed or when they start to feel that the world is, is, is just, ter- everything is terrible, you know, take a deep breath, step back and first look at yourself and look at the privilege that you have. Look at the beauty that you have in your life. Look at the, um, look at the knowledge that you have and look for the, you know, look for your own sense of engagement, your own desire to make things better. And then think that when you have all of this on your plate, are you so arrogant as to think that you're the only one? Well, the answer is, is no, there are others out there. So when you take a step back and take a deep breath and look around you, you'll start to find people like like you and Humans for Humans. You'll start to find people like Common and what she's doing for journalism and things like that. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm not alone. You know, the yeah. world isn't all bad. Look, I, look how powerful uh, Sada is. Look how powerful common is. Why don't we join to join and see what we can do together? And uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's that it's that 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 gesture of just taking a deep breath and looking around you and seeing how you can cooperate with other people and other organizations to do something for that, for good. Definitely. Well, that's our motto. Almost <laughs> humans for humans. We really believe in collaboration. Uh, we we started the um, an organization that is probably one of the few that has a core offering of mental health uh, services for trafficking survivors. And it's, um, sorry, I got lost <laughs> here a bit. Um, but uh, collaboration. Sorry. Collaboration, uh, there you go. <laughs> so we weren't sure how to reach out to people, how to make people feel involved in this topic. I had a marketing strategist telling me, Sarah, but what you're doing is not needed because there are less than 100 searches on Google for that. And I'm like... Oh, yeah, come on. Google isn't search this like who searches this. Um, and so we started just we decided in August last year to try to make a digital series where we would invite um, some experts in different fields to come and talk on topics related to mental health and human trafficking. What, what so, kind of what kind of digital series? Is it a series of YouTube videos or is it a podcast? No, there are webinars, live webinars. webinars. OK. Uh, and so what we did was we started stalking uh, professionals and interesting people online uh, that have been working in this field. And we just sent them an email saying, well, we have been following your work. Uh, we would like to invite you to this webinar. Uh, we are volunteers. We don't have any money to give you. But if you could donate a webinar on a topic that you really know about, we would love to learn from you. And absolutely everyone said yes. Ah, oh, that's so, amazing. There you go. There you go. Gathering people go. with knowledge and determination. Yeah. And it's so simple with zero resources, like, okay, maybe what we needed to pay for was Zoom, a Zoom account, but yeah. okay, that's not that much. Um, and what we thought that would be a month thing or two months, maybe max, has started in August 2020 and it's still going on. And we have webinars almost like every second week. Where do and we find these? Where, where can we find these? 
so we have all the events on our Facebook page. Um, that's the easiest place to see like all the events that are going on. Humans but, for Humans on uh, on Facebook. Yes. And then we have, uh, we launched now a network. So it's our first revenue stream because we need to get some support. But it's basically, we see it as a donation where you get something in return. So you donate something for us, you belong to your, our network, and you can connect with people internationally that have been working with these topics. You connect with all the speakers from the digital series. You have all the recordings from the digital series. And it just becomes like a hub of knowledge for people who are interested in it. Because so it's like a, it's, it's a, uh, how do people get into this network? Is it a, is it a form to fill out online or? No, they can just, uh, they have to pay, like now it's $50 a year. Um, and, but we, what we really want is people to join. So if someone can't join because of financial issues, they will, like, we will put them in as well. We are okay. building this community. Um, so the, the payment thing is just a, yeah. a formality to kind of help the organization. Uh, but you can go to our website and you have the link to the network and you just connect. You can also try one week for free. So it's like to really see what's going on in there. How many members do you have so far? So we have over 110 people who have been uh, participating in all our webinars and connecting with us. I think that one of the things that's fantastic is that our speakers, first of all, they are all incredible, like really outstanding people. Uh -huh. uh, and with every single one of them, we had the webinar, we didn't know them, right? So we meet them like for half an hour, a few weeks before the webinar, yeah. then we have the webinar. And after that, they all want to keep on collaborating with us and they all want to help a bit more. So it's, it's magical because on my first year when I was starting Humans for Humans, I was mostly alone. It took a while to build the team. And uh, now we are 23, so it oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's working. Um, That's a lot of growth but, uh, as far as collaboration. It's a lot of growth in a relatively short period of, of time. Yeah. Congratulations. In less than a year, we yeah. had a lot of people getting involved. Thank you. Um, but one of the things that I was very frustrated about in the first year is that I was trying to create a nonprofit organization to help people who are normally forgotten by society. And the question I was answering the most was, how do you make money? Oh. And uh, I was so frustrated. I, every time someone would ask me that question, I almost wanted to delete them from my network. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, I don't want to answer that question. <sighs> I want to have impact. Ask me how I can help people. How, ask me how I can increase the impact. And that was not the question I was answering. But, so. but, but isn't it, uh, I don't know, I guess I could understand someone who, you know, all of a sudden, this organization, Humans for Humans, shows up on the map uh, people start whispering about the kind of work you're doing. And I guess I can understand people's curiosity about you as the founder, you know, what's in it for you? I guess mm -hmm. I can understand a person asking that that's is, or is that, or, or is that unreasonable? I don't know. I don't no, know. No, I do understand as well, because it's like you are creating a nonprofit organization. Some people still think that you can't even get paid a salary while you're working in a nonprofit. If that's not true, you can have salaries. It's just you probably won't have a million dollar <laughs> yeah. salary. Um, but of course, you can get paid for your job. Because you could make, but you, I would imagine if you were uh, a psychologist working for, uh, you know, some sort of medical organization or maybe even on your own, there's a much more profitable lifestyle to be had that way yeah, definitely so it speaks to your engagement with the, with this issue that you are that you didn't go that route instead you started humans for humans and of course that we need to keep jobs on the side and we need to mm -hmm. keep working to like 
to survive while doing this. Yeah. Uh, but I'm always saying that if money wasn't an issue, I was living the life of my dreams because um, on, at the same time when people were telling me that Humans for Humans is too confusing, it's too big, I'm trying to do something that's uh, like too difficult. At the same time, I have the people that I'm actually helping telling me like, thank you so much for existing. Thank and there's so the justification. There's the reward for what you're doing when you see, when you're actually there on the ground and you see the direct results of it. Of course, there's going to be a ton of people. You're probably going to hear this as long as you're doing it. These people saying that what you're doing is crazy or it's not going to work. Well, it is working. You know, just the one success story, it means that you're doing the right thing. But of course, yeah. you have more than one success story. So... No, that's and just people who don't understand. That's people who, who, again, people who are sitting in that safe, secluded, and, and insulated majority who don't really understand the issue. Yeah, that's true. And, um, like, of course, it takes time to also make money because as a nonprofit, I believe you need to build trust first. Absolutely. You need to build your community. People need to see that what you're doing is actually useful. It's good quality. Yeah. Um, and from that, like, money flows from grants, from support, from donations, like, it doesn't really matter because it's like, as you were saying in the beginning, I really liked your introduction to the podcast. It's like your help is not necessary, but it's very much appreciated. Yeah. And we feel the same because we will keep doing this and we will keep pushing forward. The only reason why we need support is because if we are completely dependent on voluntary work, we are not as fast yes. providing help. Yeah. And right now we have a waiting list of people who have asked for our help and we don't have enough psychologists yeah. uh, available to help. And all our psychologists are volunteers. They have their career in psychology and then they dedicate like, they only need to dedicate an hour of their time per week. That's enough for a case. And, one and of God our bless them for doing it. Definitely. And one of our psychologists, she was like, Sarah, when I heard this, I even called my parents. Like I was <laughs> like, can you believe that this project exists? Can you believe that I can make this much of a difference just with one hour of my time? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's when you meet these people that I think everything is worth it. You just forget yeah. all the bad days, all yeah. the bad things. Again, there is a lot of ugly in the world, but I think there's much more beauty than ugly in the world. Yeah. Um, let me give you a scenario uh, because I'm very curious about one aspect of, of trafficking. Um, what if you have a victim of trafficking? Um, maybe they came from Africa and then they end up here in Norway. They come to you for help and they're here illegally. What kind of mm -hmm. challenges do you then face when it comes to immigration issues um, and uh, immigration status? How can you navigate through that and optimally help this victim of trafficking who has come to you? Um, so we never work alone, right? So Humans for Humans, we focus on the mental health support. And one thing that we say and that we do and that we believe in uh, is that we will help anyone, even if they are still in that process of being accepted in the country or still in the process of even understanding or confirming if they are a victim of human trafficking or something else. Okay. Um, if they are undocumented, it doesn't matter. For us, it doesn't matter because uh, we don't have that legal responsibility and we just care about the person, not really the, the legal system around it, because that will be dealt with by other organizations. Okay. And we work um, in collaboration also with Caritas and with ECPAT and we have, uh, and they work in collaboration with other entities and legal entities and migration offices. So the thing that people need to also understand is that supporting one survivor of human trafficking requires a lot of collaboration. It, it's not if you want to collaborate, it will be better. Is if you don't collaborate, you won't make anything. 
Yeah, so yeah. really, these entities have to come together, work together, uh, and have training like similar training in a way so that they are consistent in the work that they are doing. Yeah. Um, so when a victim is identified like or suspected, uh, there's a very long process of um, confirming the case, but they will be provided shelter immediately. Uh, the crisis center also helps uh, here in Norway. Uh, and within the crisis center, there are other organizations focusing on human trafficking. So they hopefully and ideally they will get shelter at least right away, even though it might take years for them to be documented and to okay. have a legal situation. Because I would think that that, that immigration status uh, and maybe other legal issues at times can be a barrier to a victim seeking help. Yeah. Am I right? You know, they're afraid, they're afraid of the legal consequences of kind of, you know, sticking their head up above, <laughs> above the water and asking for help. They're afraid of getting a little attention, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, from, yeah. from the, legal, uh, the legal system. And, and of, of course, imagine as a, as a migrant that came here uh, voluntarily and uh, by our own choice, like, I realized that just for the fact that I'm from the EU, my life is a lot easier than for any of my friends that's not from oh, the EU. Absolutely, yeah. And for us, like voluntary and happy migrants, it's difficult to transition to a new country. Sure, it's difficult sure. to understand our rights. Uh, I had a job that was also not respecting my rights, and I didn't know that because I didn't know oh, wow. what I was allowed to have here in Norway. Um, and so imagine for someone that has even, like, didn't even come here voluntarily, doesn't have a network, a group of friends a family anything to support them um asking for help from like how do you even know where the legal yeah. office is right how do you even know who you are going to ask for help right it's like you run away from home and you run in any direction and just how how do you know how and technology can help a lot if sure. we have good systems in place that are simple to understand if we have a place that shows here's where you ask for help in case of this this and that that helps a lot we need to make systems clear and simple and also not written in our mother languages because survivors yes. might come from other countries. Yeah. So if we have the services in English and if we try to cover a bit more languages, we are also helping uh, not only the migrants, uh, how, how, do you, how do I call the like happy voluntary migrants, <laughs> you're helping lots of people that are normally forgotten and you don't even That's think right. about when you're creating these services. That's right, yeah. So how do you find these victims or do they find you? How does that work? Is it mostly you guys reaching out to people or is it mostly people coming to you for help? And how, how does that work? That's an um, interesting dynamic as I see it. Yes, and it's, it, it varies a lot because there are many types of survivors as well, right? There are those who have just come out of trafficking and in those cases normally the caseworker that's already helping them in an NGO uh, we'll refer them to us and ask, like, can you provide counseling to these two clients of mine? Uh, and there's the importance of that collaboration. You have to have a working relationship with that organization in order for them to refer to them to you. And you need to build trust with them as yes. well. Um, but we don't provide counseling only for, for the survivors. We also provide free counseling for the professionals that work with them. Oh, and wow. That, interesting. Uh, I didn't so, know that. So this is like, has been a very big goal from the beginning and I actually thought we would get more requests for help for survivors uh, but immediately we got lots of requests for help from professionals Okay. Um, and it's very important because then you sometimes have professionals that are also survivors uh, that are uh, both and um, survivors that are more independent can reach out to us like 
on their own. But for example, in Norway, I had two cases of people, um, one that I worked with, and we thought it was very strange. She didn't have a bank account on her own. Her husband mm. was controlling everything. Um, and at that time, we weren't sure what to do. And then finally, like she, she managed to leave the house and now she's okay. Uh, and then another case of a friend of mine that just called me that she met a lady uh, and that lady had been exploited in Norway uh, for, for a long time and she needed help. And so immediately, like we contacted Caritas, Caritas started helping right away. The crisis center was helping. It's like suddenly you just have to make a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night. And the beautiful thing is that people who work in this field and that work in social projects and everything, they will pick up uh, in the middle of the night and they will, yeah. they will care. Um, not always, but in many organizations, they will. You, you mentioned um, the example of the lady who um, didn't have a bank account and was being controlled by her husband. You know, through, uh, through studying the work that uh, Kaman Mak does uh, from the Oslo desk, she's had a few um, cases that she's looked into about women who, uh, you know, immigrant or migrant women who then uh, become married uh, to a Norwegian citizen and they have no bank account. And that right there is often, very often, a glaring sign that there's a problem, that there's a control issue, that there's, a, there's an element of victimhood that needs to be mm -hmm. exposed. Yeah, um, and I, I've talked to Kaman a lot about this as well. Isn't she great? Yes. I, I, I just love Absolutely her. I'm fantastic. so glad I met her. I'm so glad I can call her a friend. I love her. Yeah. She's awesome. She, she is really awesome. And we have been discussing this because it's it's a big problem. And um, when you're in a vulnerable situation, it's very difficult. First, sometimes to understand that you are in a bad situation. Um, sometimes you might think, okay, but I have to endure or oh, but this well, is the life yeah. I chose. Depending or on what country these women come from, I can imagine them thinking, oh my gosh, my life is so much better. They might because of their and background. And not only that. Unfortunately, like I also met a, a, a lady that was trafficked in Norway many years ago. And when she escaped, she was trafficked for sexual exploitation. And when she went back to her country, she's from uh, a country in Africa, she said, uh, my family didn't accept me because ah. I should have endured. I sh I, I, at least I was making a bit of money. Right. Uh, and they needed that money. And That's so terrible. Terrible. One of the things that we also talk about is asking for help might not be um, the best thing in their head. You know, they, they will think of the consequences of asking for help, uh, being like uh, segregated from their families, being uh, excluded from their group of friends because of the culture, uh, because of their history. Like we don't know, and that's why we really need to talk to as many survivors as possible because each story is different. And Malaika once said like, uh, when I speak, uh, I speak for a million victims. And then she yeah. said, no, actually, no. When I speak, I speak for myself because um, everyone will have their own voice and everyone will have their own story and it's not the same. Um, I'm, so, getting a, I'm getting an impression that your work will forever be changing because, as you say, every story, every circumstance is different. So you're always going to be... Uh, you're always going to have to be open for knowledge, new, new knowledge and, and learning new methods on how to help them. And it's, it's a never ending process uh, uh, when it comes to your, to, to your education, to your, to your way of dealing with this issue. Does that sound tiring 
or does no, that, that sounds super exciting isn't it you know <laughs> yeah. we you and i are probably a lot alike in that we enjoy the challenge because that challenge when we surmount the challenge that means personal growth and that personal growth puts us in a position to where we can better help others and so, I, I think it's important to to not be afraid of making mistakes because I know that I will make mistakes and I'm already making mistakes. Like maybe um, I didn't take care of the document that I really needed to be able to do this or that, or maybe I didn't answer that email fast enough, or maybe I didn't say exactly what I should have said in that meeting, but it's a learning process. It's like, you won't be perfect from step one. So no. it's just like, it's a process. Keep trying. And if you like, I think that the most important thing is to be committed to your cause. Amen. Absolutely. You've got to stay on the course. Values. You've and got to stay on course. Yeah, exactly. Because if you, if you are not respecting your principles and your values, if you are not following your vision, then who will, right? Like if you are going to change it for uh, whatever money or anything that people will give you that will change the course of what you're trying to do, then I can What's really identify with that, you know, uh, you know, doing my podcast, I, I have my goal. You know, I want to I want to be a platform where people like you can come on and talk about important things. I'm looking for um, inspiration. I'm looking to be stimulated into action through these conversations that I have with people like yourself. So I'm very focused on that and I'm burning for that new knowledge. But at the same time, there are people out there who criticize there are people out there who try to trip up the process. I'm sure you are met with that as well. Um, have you ever had a moment on this journey since you've started Humans for Humans where you've been thinking, I need to stop? Yeah. Have you ever met that kind of negativity to where, you know, that criticism has got you in a situation where you feel like it's, you know, I need to move on. I need to do something else. Um, I don't think it was from external criticism. I think it's more like, for example, when I see our waiting list and when I have to tell people that I'm so sorry that we don't have a therapist available and then I start freaking out that I'm like trying to achieve something that's way too big and uh, I need more people to help. I need more people to give their time, their expertise. Um, and I'm afraid that I don't have the right skills to do it. Like uh, I don't normally put myself out there so much uh, and I've been hearing from many people like you have to start doing it a bit more. Um, what do What do you so, mean putting put yourself? What do you mean? Like uh, some people, even my friends, some of them didn't know that I was the founder of Humans for Humans. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, it's yeah, like, you're right. Yeah, I under, Yeah, I get it. There's. I have people who have been my friend for decades, and they don't know I have a podcast. Oh, see? I didn't know you had a podcast. I didn't know that's what you were doing. <laughs> so it's like, okay, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I should change something. Uh, but it's really like when I start feeling the pressure of not making money, um, you know, of not have of working so much, so many hours, and not having a stable income. So that's when those moments when I feel like, okay, maybe I can't do this, but maybe I'm, I'm not capable of moving forward. But then it's like that day happens and the day after you get the very good message, you get the very good feedback or suddenly you come suddenly, on my podcast. I come on your podcast. <laughs> you see, it's, it's, it's really fantastic because yeah. it's people like you that just listen. For example, with Caritas, we were there on a workshop and we talked to the responsible per person for one of the projects for like five minutes. Yeah. But she listened. 
Yes. She really heard what we were saying. She thought it was fantastic and she invited us the next day to have a meeting. So it takes time. You will get a thousand no's, but there will be some key, even if it's just 20 people, is what you were saying. If you have one success story, if you have helped yes. one person, yeah. then it's worth it, right? So I, it's, it's just it's, difficult to keep the motivation super on, but I have a super excited team as well. Like they are so engaged. They are so fantastic. Like, that's good. It's incredible. But let's, let's talk about something. I don't know if I'm out of line for doing this, but let's, let me, let me brainstorm for a second here. Okay. Now you are the face, you are the founder, the executive director of humans for humans. Um, why not put your face out there? I mean, you're, you're, you speak so enthusiastically about the work that you do. Uh, it's easy to understand and it's motivating to hear you speak on the work that you're doing. Why not put your face out there more often? I think people are going to watch this podcast or listen to this podcast, depends on what platform they're on. And they're going to be like, wow, this, you know, Sada is doing some great work. So, my little brainstorming session here says that if Sada Pestena gets out there more visible, talking more about the work she does, maybe it will lead to even more collaborations. Maybe it will lead to even more donations. And it will definitely inspire more people to get involved. And it will definitely, Sada will definitely inspire herself because looking at you and I see the engagement, I can see it in your face. You, you love doing this kind of work and you're enjoying talking about it. So why not get out there and talk about it more? Yeah. I Am I out of line? Am I out of line? (laughs) No, 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 it's totally fine. Uh, I don't have a clear answer for that. I don't know. I've never been a very, um, like even my social media accounts haven't really been about like, my face, you know, or pictures of myself only is mostly like pictures. I love photography and it's just pictures that I take. Uh-huh. Uh, so I've never been the type of person, you know, that shares a lot of what I'm doing in my personal life. But with Humans for Humans, I really don't understand. Like, I'm ready to do it. Uh-huh. I've worked in startups before where they asked me to make videos and I felt like I really couldn't make the video. Yeah. Uh, for example, they asked me once to make a video of my story of moving to Norway. And I was in a horrible place in Norway. Like I was struggling between four <sighs> jobs, getting paid nothing, yeah. struggling so much. And I was like, I can't make this video. My story is not done yet. Like I'm in the middle of the horror part. I need to go to a better part to but be able you to know, tell it. But you know what people love? People love hearing a summary uh, in real time of the struggle. They like to hear what is the cause and then what is the struggle. What are you trying to achieve and what is the struggle about trying to achieve it? If you put that into video form and I'm talking and I'm, yeah, you know, and I'm not talking about like a long, well-produced film type of thing. I'm talking about a, you know, open up a YouTube channel. Um, Do do you have a YouTube channel for uh, humans for humans? Oh, we we are just using Vimeo uh, because the the webinars are just live, right? Well, so, but thinking about thinking about the uh, monetization for the cause, YouTube is a great way to go. But anyway, I'm, I'm just brainstorming here. But if you were to if, if you were to open a YouTube channel, and I tell you, it, it's it's not easy. You know, I went over to video format for my podcast in January of this year, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is weird. Oh look how stupid I look and all that. But you know what? You get over that really, really quickly. And if you were to put your story, your own personal story, not for reasons of arrogance, but to 
let your supporters and potential supporters and collaborators understand who you are, understand, you know, personalize, uh, personalize um, uh, humans for humans, make it a personal thing. And then from there, you start telling the story about your different collaborations and the work that you and your team are doing. And it's, it, it, I can guarantee you, uh, Un- Uncle John says that the, it will bring, it will bring uh, benefits to humans for humans. And there's, I don't think there's anything arrogant about that. I'm sure. You're quite humble. You're very humble. Your humility shines through. So you putting your face out there is not for your own personal gain. It's for the gain of humans for humans. Yeah, I think that that has been something. I, I really can't be any other way, to be honest. When people ask me as an expert, like I'm not an expert, right? And so when I don't know, I just tell them like, I'm really not sure. Um, and I ask for help from a lot of people. Like, can you, even with my mentors, I have a mentor, she's, um, she's the founder of Diversify. Mm-hmm. And she believed in this project from the beginning. Like I just told her, like I had this idea, but I'm not sure if I can do it alone. And she said, let's meet. And we met and she said, Sarah, that's totally possible. And I said, well, but I'm very young and I don't have experience. So people won't trust me. And she said, well, screw experience. There's a problem in the world. You have a solution. Just go. And I say it. that engagement is a lot more important than experience. If you yeah. are on fire for a cause, that does a lot more than the person who, eh, you know, they're just, they're, maybe they're in it just for the money, but they've been doing it for 20 years. I'll yeah. go with that young, inexperienced person who is really on fire for the cause. And, and thank you. And when you were saying that people want to hear the struggle, like Humans for Humans started during COVID. So we have people in different countries, volunteers from different countries. We have volunteers in Norway from different cities. So we never met in person. We met in person last year in July and we were five at the time. Mm. And then I met in person with some people, but as a team, we only work online. And then finally this May, yeah, I think it was in May this year for the first time we met in person. And so I just told them the story of Humans for Humans right from the beginning, how it started, what has been our journey. And everyone was so emotional and everyone was so shocked because they didn't know so many details. And I told the struggles and I told all the things that went wrong and the mistakes that we did. And then uh, Janelle, one of our volunteers, she said, Sarah, I had no idea you had gone through all of this. Like, how are you still doing this? And And you see, there's the power in that personalization of humans for humans. You know, people, people, if they, if they watch just a short clip of this podcast episode, uh, and they hear you speak on it, they're going to think, wow, she's an expert. She knows what she's doing. She's successful. And while all of those things are true, if they know ahead of that, if they know that all of this has happened in a short period of time, and if they're familiar with the struggle, you're going to pull in, you know, your circle, your circle of collaborators is going to grow because people respond to that struggle. They do. Yeah. That's my, and just I, a little brainstorming advice right there. Just a little. Yeah, and I know, and I've been reflecting on that as well. And yesterday I was even talking to a friend. She posted a picture of like the prison that we build around ourselves with other people's opinions. Oh, yes. And I have been reflecting on this is like, why am I so concerned of what people will think? Like, I have a, a very strong network. I have a very good group of friends. Uh, I have a very group, a good group of colleagues as well. So why, what am I afraid of? What yeah. am I trying to, like, I don't have anything to hide because I share these things with 
people that want to listen and ask questions and I have no problem. But when it comes to me just filming myself and <laughs> putting it on social media, it's like there's something there. There's no, but I get something. it. It's not easy to do. Yeah. Going over to a, to a video podcast was rough. It was very hard for me to do, but I, but I did it and I'm alive. And it didn't kill me. So. <laughs> and it's fantastic because it's places like this where we get to learn from anyone's experience. Yes. Right? It's really their, their story. What are they doing? That's the whole purpose of my podcast. I want people to come on and tell their story so I can find inspiration, motivation, and then hopefully my viewers and listeners can also find that inspiration and motivation. And there are so many interesting people in the world. I think this project is fantastic. And I'm, I'm really happy that you invited me. Um, Thank you for coming on. Because Listen, it, yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Uh, it's just like the power of hearing a story. Um, I, I feel it for myself. Like I like to hear when someone says, yeah. like, and no one believes me and I did it anyways. Um, but doesn't it also feel good for you personally to tell your story? You've been smiling almost the whole time that you've been here. Yeah. So it's, it, it does something for the individual also to come on, on, a, on a new platform and tell that story. I'm sure when, when we're finished with this, or I'm hoping when we're finished with this, that something has happened in, in, the pro, in your mental process that will then lead you to a new path that's going to mean more growth for you, more growth for humans for humans. So not only can it inspire others, but it can inspire oneself to tell the story. Yeah, and I, I need, I have good people around me, even Kaman, who has a lot of experience writing stories, like I can ask for help in, yes. in, those, in that sense. Even like participating in the podcast, I was like super anxious, was like, what if I say something wrong, what if I do something wrong? <laughs> You know, it's just like anxiety, but uh... it's it's uh, you know, and I I totally understand that. But but uh, I try to tell my guests that this podcast, I mean, it's just it's just a conversation. We're sharing ideas. We're trying to inspire. And what's what is there to be afraid of with that? Exactly. Yeah. No, no. I think it's fantastic. Listen, I have two things I'd like to ask you before we wind this up. Um, first, I'm gonna say uh, a sentence, and then I want you to fill in the blanks on the rest of the sentence. Okay. <laughs> And here we go. The sentence is, Sara Pastena is? <laughs> Sara Pastena is um, a passionate person about the world that believes that she can make something meaningful. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, I love it. I, th I think like what I really would like the world to become or to be and I, I was even thinking I, I should write a, a story for kids about the pandemic and the end of the story would be the end that I would like to have of this pandemic which is a world that works as a community that works as humanity as one kind right as one species that helps each other um, I think that's my big dream for the world you should write that. You should write that as a children's story, a children's book. Self-publish it on Amazon, and send the proceeds right back into Humans for Humans. I don't know. Just an idea. Just an idea. I no, I, I think you're totally like we should talk more. <laughs> hey, that would be my pleasure. Hey, we have phone numbers now, so anytime. Yeah. Um, okay. So thank you for filling in the blank on that sentence. And now, the last thing I would like to ask of you is, can you say something? in a sentence or two or three, a paragraph maybe, can you say something that I and my viewers and listeners can carry with us to be inspired, to be motivated, to feel better about the world and our position in it? Can you say anything that will do that for myself and for my listeners? 
Um, well, for me, having social impact or changing the world is almost the same as traveling. You can have a super expensive trip in a super resort in a dream place, or you can have a backpack trip where you take the bus and you go to a, sm uh, a cheaper place and you still see a beautiful place, right? So with social impact, you can try to go huge uh, and invest a lot of resources, money and time on doing something that you don't know if it will work. Or you can just take one small step in a direction that you actually believe that is the right one and just connect with people around you because it's possible for you to make a difference with zero resources, zero investment. I'm so glad you say that because a lot of people, they get hung up on the financial side of things. I can't make this happen unless I raise money. Mm -hmm. and I can't I have an influence if I don't have money. And that's just not true. No. And I actually believe almost on the opposite. Like on, on the, I would say, yeah. Well, yeah, on the opposite side of it. Yeah, very often that whole process of monetizing, of financing, of looking for uh, sponsors and stuff can corrupt your, your vision. And also I'll, it's like if you don't work hard and if you don't show people that you are actually working, if you're just going to presentations and pitching your idea to everyone, how will people want to invest in you? Exactly. They have to see that you are willing to do the work. That's a phrase that I use all the time. I am willing to do the work and you have to show that. And you show that through actions. Of course, you have to get out there from time to time and pitch your idea. But people also have to see that after that, before and after that pitch, you're actually doing the work. That's so important. Definitely. And one motto that I, I love, um, it's from a Portuguese writer. And he says, some, the translation, rough translation is something like, um, be whole in each thing and put the max of you in the least that you do. And ah. I, I think that's really beautiful because if we really try to do it that way, it means that we will put the max of our, ourselves into our friendships, into our family relationships, into our work, into our cooking, uh, into our sleeping. You know, like if you're trying to be whole, if you're trying to really be there for your friends, listen, when someone tells you like, oh, I'll have an interview tomorrow, like, Remember to ask how the interview went the next day, right? Just, just pay attention to what people are saying and keep in touch. Be there. That's a good point, you know, and um, that's actually something that, that I see. Now, you've inspired me by saying that because from time to time, I struggle with the fact that, um, you know, through a hundred and... 40 plus podcast episodes I've talked with a lot of people and some of them I've had continued contact with but some of them I haven't and I struggle with that it's like why did that great experience have to end why does it only have to be that one conversation during that one podcast episode yeah you know well if, of course it's not always up to us like it's a, a relationship true. requires two people that's true but, but um it's just showing that you're there. I yeah. think that we are talking a lot about self-love, which is definitely extremely important, but it's also important to be loved by others. And it's also important to show our love to others um, in the pure sense of the word. Um, yeah. Can so, you can you tell my uh, viewers and listeners very briefly, where, is the, where are the best places to find you and the work that you're doing on social media? Yeah, so Instagram and Facebook, it's uh, at humans4.org. Our uh, website is humans4.org, 
uh, and you can find absolutely everything uh, there about what we're doing on instagram we are showing more of like the things that we do and simple information for the general public as well and then uh, on facebook and linkedin is more professional um, and our website has absolutely everything so okay. um, there are many ways that people can get involved and like even if, no matter what the background is like if you want to give us 30 minutes of your time in a month that is very helpful so anything helps, really. Anything helps, and everybody is capable of doing something to make the world a better place. Yes. Everyone is capable of doing something. So um, thank you so much, Sada, for this conversation. Um, thank you for gracing my podcast with your presence. This has been uh, a very enjoyable experience. I, um, I deliberately held back on looking too much into the work that you were doing because I wanted to get it as fresh as possible and in real time straight from you. So thank you so much for, for, for laying it out there, what you do, um, and for inspiring me and, and, and motivating me. And I hope that uh, my listeners and viewers can pick up on that as well. Uh, Sada Pastena, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. It was lovely. Thank uh, you. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm.